We walk on them, admire their beauty, use them to build our homes, and tell our kids not to throw them. Though rocks may not be exciting to everyone, they are a fascinating part of God's creation. Stay tuned. There was just a scale of geologic process operating in the past that far outweighs anything that's happening today. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Rocks come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, and consistencies. And although there are thousands of different rocks, there are only three basic types. So what are they, and how did they form? Rock on with us for the next 15 minutes as we discuss the creation of rocks and discover that much of the ones we see today formed during Noah's Flood. To get us off to a smooth start, ICR geologist Bill Hoche tells us what the three rock types are called. Ask anybody about the differences among rocks, and the first thing you get is a geologist will tell you, well, there's igneous and sedimentary and metamorphic rocks. Those are the three groups, and most people start yawning about them. Geologist and ICR president Dr. John Morris explains that the kind of rock that forms depends upon chemical composition and exposure to the elements. The rock types are all designated as that by their depositional processes, the environments that they were in when they were laid down, whether fire or alteration or sedimentation. And so it depends on the circumstances, what kind of rock you have. And of course, even in the sedimentary rocks, and well, in all of them, there's variety that has to do with chemical content and, and specifics. In sedimentary rocks in particular, which are the interesting ones to me, those are the ones that have fossils and stuff in them. There's just all kinds of different shades of environment, or chemical constructs, or cement that binds the grains together, all of these different factors add up into making a, a unique rock. Dr. Andrew Snelling is a geologist and director of research at Answers in Genesis. He tells us how these chemicals combine to form minerals, which in turn combine to form rocks. The different atoms of the different elements behave differently, and they attach to one another differently. So, for example, life is based on carbon the carbon atom and the way it connects to hydrogen and oxygen atoms and nitrogen atoms to build up organic molecules that make the different proteins and the DNA and all the stuff of life. Well, geology is primarily based on the silicon atom and the silicon atom combines with oxygen in a particular way for oxygens at the apices of a triangular pyramid. It's called the silicon tetrahedron. And the way these pyramids are stacked together and what other elements tie the pyramids together and the layers of pyramids forms the different sorts of minerals. So the different elements combine to make minerals. And then the different minerals combining give you the different rocks. So various kinds of minerals and environmental influences make up the different kinds of rocks that we see. As we take a look at the three categories, we'll learn how temperature, pressure, Weathering and erosion make and convert different types of rock. Dr. Snelling tells us about the sedimentary kind. Now, the sedimentary rocks most people understand. It's fairly easy. Water and wind erode the earth's surface. Pre-existing rocks are weathered and eroded. And so you get grains of minerals like quartz. You get clay minerals. You get muds. And so these accumulate in layers, being washed by water into layers. And so when you get a layer of sand and it hardens to rock, we call it a sandstone. When you get silt that forms a layer of silt, it gets hardened into siltstone. A layer of mud gets hardened into mudstone or shale. 
you get boulders all in a pile and, and you get some mud in between them or some sand in between them and it's cemented together. We call it a conglomerate. Uh, you get lime precipitating, maybe forming grains of lime sand. You know, the sand components are actually lime rather than quartz or very fine grain precipitation of lime. You get a limestone. And so sedimentary rocks are not hard to understand. They were sediments that were deposited in layers that were hardened into a rock called sedimentary rocks. In contrast to sedimentary rocks, igneous rocks were formed from a molten state. Dr. Morris. While sedimentary rocks are deposited as sediments by moving water, the igneous rocks are these melted rocks. There's great heat inside the earth. Just the earth's interior is hot, and these great heats and pressures down in there. But as the rocks come up in volcanoes, they also come up as granite blobs just rising to the surface. They're hot and they're liquid, but as they cool, as they get near the surface, they begin to cool off. And in this granite melt, there's all sorts of different chemical constituents, but as the temperature begins to drop, it's all boiling, it's all hot, but then as it begins to drop one of those constituents will begin to solidify. And then as the molten blob continues to cool, another constituent will freeze, it will harden. And then there's more to the granite. But if you notice a granite, it has all these different little grains and they're all interconnected. That's because the melt itself cooled at different levels and at each level, another constituent solidified out until the whole rock is solid. And that's, of course, what we find today as granite rock. What's interesting is that the erosion of igneous rocks produces sedimentary rocks. A sedimentary rock like sandstone comes from the erosion of an upstream igneous rock. Actually, floods are the most important depositional environment in sedimentary rocks. We all know that moving water does amazing things, and the faster it's moving, the more volume it is, the more it will do. Moving water can erode huge volumes of a rock, even a solid hard rock like a granite, and then deposit it. And moving water, the thing that it does the best is to sort things out into individual grain sizes and to similar grain sizes and similar chemistries so that the deposit itself will have a particular character. The water will separate the sand grains from an eroded granite. It will separate the sand grains from the dissolved clays and the smaller particles and they will be deposited separately, and so we'll have one deposit of predominantly sand grains and another deposit of predominantly clay particles. They're different kinds of rocks. One becomes a sandstone, one becomes a shale. And both igneous and sedimentary rock can be changed into the third category of rock called metamorphic. Dr. Snelling explains. Metamorphism of rocks means that rocks have been changed from one type of rock into another. So, for example, a limestone if it's exposed to heat and pressure by deep burial in the earth, or maybe a, a molten granite comes up into a limestone. The heat from the granite will change the limestone into a marble. A sandstone might get metamorphosed into what we call a gneiss, or if it's a, a mudstone, a shale, it'll get converted into what we call a schist. We've heard about the formation of the three basic rock types, but what about original created rock? Bill Hoche says that even though most granites we see today, such as mountain ranges, were formed during the flood, the kind of rock that God made in the beginning was probably of granitic composition. He tells us that in most places on earth, these rock layers are covered beneath flood-generated sedimentary rocks. We get places on the continent we can go today and we can see 
what those basement rocks look like. And they're largely granitic in composition. In other words, they got a lot of potassium feldspar, they got a lot of quartz, and they got a lot of relatively buoyant crust, or relatively lightweight compared to ocean minerals. These granitic rocks were probably the, the original rocks of the continent, because the continent, I think, has always been here as continental rock. In other words, when we look at granites in the bottom of Grand Canyon or up on the Canadian Shield or something like that, we're looking at hard granitic rock that was probably creation week rock. So it was not recycled during the flood. Why? Because that continental crust floats. It's not going to dive into the mantle like the oceanic crust did. Because of continuous water erosion, sedimentary rocks can still be formed today on a relatively small scale. But what about igneous and metamorphic rocks? Do we see their formation today? Dr. Morris. Some igneous rocks are forming today. Obviously, when a volcano erupts, that's an igneous rock, that lava that comes out. It's molten lava, but then when it solidifies, it will be an igneous rock. It'll be a basalt or a rhyolite or something, uh, depending on its chemical constituency. But while igneous rocks are formed today, the great, huge igneous bodies of, of rock that we see in the geologic record are just immense. In fact, our continents are made up primarily of granitic rock. So there was just a scale of geologic process operating in the past that far outweighs anything that's happening today. Igneous rocks are forming today, but not the immense igneous rocks of the past or the metamorphic rocks that we see today. Metamorphism happens today along fault zones and stuff where there's heat and pressure going on, but we see these metamorphic rocks that that are continent-wide in scope. Something else was going on in the past, something of, of a dynamic nature, something of a global nature. That's like the flood of Noah's day. When it comes to the formation of rocks, both creationists and evolutionists agree on the origin of rock types. But as Dr. Morris tells us, the disagreement between the world views is all a matter of time. An evolutionary geologist tends to think in long time, but he also thinks in local events that causes these sediments to be deposited, or the volcanoes. He thinks of one volcano, or one stream bed, or one delta, or one seashore, or one lake bed, local depositional environments as opposed to large scale. But you see, the flood geologists will tend to think of things on a grand scale. The Bible tells us that the flood was global in scale, but I really don't think that any particular geologic event was happening globally. What was happening in the North American area might not have been happening in Africa. Something else was going on there. I mean, it would be different. There might be certain stages of the flood that would prefer one or the other, but basically we're looking at maybe continental-wide or hemispherical-wide events going on, but still on a grand scale, as opposed to these local scales that my uniformitarian evolutionary colleagues tend to talk about. Even though the global flood was a judgment from God because of the incredible wickedness that was penetrating the world at that time, Dr. Snelling points out that God was still extending his love by using the flood as a means of provision for the future. For example, during the flood, the coal beds were formed and the oil deposits, a lot of them. And therefore, God was in judgment providing for us resources that we'd need to use in the post-flood world. Many of the ore deposits, the economic accumulations of these metallic minerals, would have formed during the flood. And we mine them now and we enjoy the technology that we do today because even when God was judging the world at the time of the flood, he was also providing us these resources with the different rock types, the different minerals, 
that we could discover them in the post-flood world and use them to, to live fulfilling lives, not only in investigating the world, but developing the technology that helps us to enjoy life today. But the provision he now offers is not one of minerals or fuel, but rather of escape from the impending judgment, which will be by fire. If God is our creator, then we need to give an account to him. And if he's our judge, then we need to either face his wrath or accept his offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I would urge you to consider the evidence in God's world that is consistent with his word and therefore face up to the fact that everyone needs to repent of their rebellion against God and accept Jesus Christ, God's free offer, loving offer of salvation through Jesus Christ so that you can escape from the judgment to come. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.